Okay, I think we are ready to get started. Hello everyone, thank you so much for joining today's Friends of the British Overseas Territories webinar. It is our first event of the year, so looking forward to a fantastic year ahead with all of our awesome events. And very excited to kick off with this one. So um, my name is Reem Ibrahim, I am the events assistant now and uh, charity spokesperson. I'm super excited for today's event with a wonderful charity that we've been following the work of for some time, uh, the UK Antarctica Heritage Trust. Um, their mission is to promote a greater public engagement with Antarctica through heritage conservation, storytelling and effective advocacy. Through the care and conservation of their six historic sites and monuments uh, all across the Antarctic Peninsula, they aim to engage, inform and inspire current and future generations with Antarctica's heritage. They deliver and support a range of innovative public programmes to engage and inspire peoples of all ages with 250 years of British human endeavour in Antarctica. I'm super excited to welcome Dr Ruth Mullet. She'll discuss her work and explain the unique destination, which is Port Lockroy, the UK's most southerly public post office. Ruth is interested in understanding the historic environment through the stories of those who have lived and worked in it. In her role, Ruth seeks to ensure that the heritage sites and builders in the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust's care are conserved according to their significance and special interest. Ruth has previously worked as a heritage consultant on projects ranging from medieval hall houses to World War II air bases and from country houses to historic ships. Before entering the historic environment profession, Ruth trained as a medievalist and taught manuscript studies and cultural history at the University of Geneva in Switzerland and Cornell University in the USA. So before I hand over to the wonderful Dr. Ruth Mullet, I just want to uh, go through some housekeeping. The event is being recorded, um, so just keep that in mind. If you have any questions throughout the event, pop them into the chat box and we can go through them um, once we go through the Q&A. The presentation from Ruth will last approximately half an hour and then we have lots of time for all of your fantastic questions, which I know you'll have. Um, also, just a bit of housekeeping, make sure you keep yourself on mute uh, whilst Ruth is talking so that we don't get distracted and we can hear all the wonderful things that she has to say. Okay, uh, Ruth, over to you. Thank you so much for that introduction, Reem. Let me just um, try and share my presentation with you. You see that? Yeah, awesome, thank you. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for having me here tonight. I'm really delighted to be with you and to speak about the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, which is the wonderful charity that I have the privilege of working for. So um, as Reem's already given you a bit of an introduction to what we do, um, but we are the charitable body that works to preserve and protect Antarctica's human heritage um, and its remarkable stories of human endeavor, scientific discovery and life at the very extremes. Um, so I'll come back and explain a bit more about our mission and what we do. Um, down in Antarctica and back here in the UK um, a bit later, but I thought we would start by going right back to the very beginning, to the first human encounters of Antarctica and how that led us to the conservation work that we do today. So as Reem said, plenty of time for questions um, at the end, so do pop them in the chat as you think of them um, and we will get to them. So I think we can all agree 
that Antarctica is incredibly important um, as a great wilderness, as a scientific laboratory, as both a driver of global climate, climate and a barometer of climate change, as a unique geopolitical identity, but also as the theatre of some of the most extraordinary human accomplishments. And there's been a long fascination with the Great White Continent. The ancient Greeks reasoned that there must be a land in opposition to the North. The oral traditions of indigenous populations from South America and New Zealand point to early exploration of the Southern Ocean and Antarctica as far back as the seventh century. But the first documented attempts to explore this part of the world date to the 16th century, with Ferdinand Magellan, Francisco de Orches, and Francis Drake in their early navigations around Cape Horn and into the Drake Passage. And records um, of the successful crossing of the Drake Passage into Antarctic waters don't actually come till the 18th century and the famous second voyage of Captain James Cook where he both circumnavigated Antarctica and made claim to South Georgia. While ice prevented Cook spotting any Antarctic landmass, he did identify plenty of wildlife along the way, including seals and whales, which came to inform some of the later periods of the continent's history. So moving forward then, it wasn't until the early 19th century that we had the first documented and confirmed sightings of land as opposed to just ice. It was in 1819 and 20 that William Smith, Fabian von Bellenhausen, Edward Bransfield and Nathaniel Palmer, explorers and sealers, um, pushed further south and recognised Antarctica as a continent of land. So once sighted, sailors and sealers, navigators of many nationalities clamoured to chart, name, land upon and harvest the natural resources of the Antarctic. And what followed was pretty much a century of exploitation of the biodiversity of Antarctica, as the seals and then the whales were hunted almost to extinction. This was a period which has been historically little studied, but more recently new research into this period is revealing new insights. And um, the myth of predominantly white Western sailors um, and crew has become better nuanced to understand the origins of many of these people and the sometimes indentured nature of their engagement. So emerging stories of people from Africa, South America and Cape Verde are increasing our understanding of actually what happened in this time. And then we fast forward to the period of Antarctic, Antarctica's history that we're probably all most familiar with. Um, the reinvigoration at the turn of the 20th century of exploration for its own sake. The large characters and epic stories of Amundsen, Scott, Shackleton and their quests for Antarctic firsts are well told. But it wasn't just Northern Europeans. Nobu Shirese of Japan led an attempt on the pole in the same period, um, changing focus only when he realised that Scott and Amundsen were too far ahead. And of course, alongside all of this, there was a political storm brewing. The first few decades of the 20th century saw much in the way of political manoeuvring in Antarctica. There's also always been a political dimension to human activity in the Antarctic, the earliest explorers claiming the lands they sighted for king and country, 
But this really came to the fore in the 20th century with the UK leading the charge in the sovereignty race for Antarctica. Ever since Antarctica was first sighted in 1820, there's been a political component to its exploration. The UK established its claim to a portion of Antarctica in 1908, ostensibly extending the Falkland Islands dependencies down the Antarctic Peninsula region all the way to the South Pole. A shrewd move in order to order to regulate and levy taxes on the lucrative whaling industry. Aided by the UK, the then British colonies of New Zealand and Australia also established large claims, followed by France and the other whaling superpower Norway. Where trouble began to brew was in the 1940s, when Chile and Argentina both laid claim to the Antarctic Peninsula region, and thus three overlapping claims um, were made in the busiest region of the Antarctic. So this political element came to dominate Antarctic affairs during and after the Second World War, when Britain and other nations were establishing wintering bases. The idea was that to have men stationed at permanent bases in Antarctica, where they would overwinter, would strengthen these territorial claims. So in 1944, two permanent bases were established on the Antarctic Peninsula at Port Lockroy, and we'll come to look at that in more detail later, and at Whalers Bay in, on Deception Island. And in 1945, a third was established at Hope Bay. These were strategic locations on the peninsula from where they could monitor Argentinian activity. The expedition was led by Lieutenant James Marr, a former scout on Shackleton's quest expedition, who later sailed with the Discovery um, investigations. He recruited educated men, mostly scientists, who would keep themselves occupied with scientific work during their two years on the base. This really marked the start of the British state-funded scientific programme in Antarctica and what was to become the birthplace of the British Antarctic Survey. So the more quirky aspect of the establishment of these bases was the opening of post offices at each base, the intention being to strengthen um, and further the territorial claim. Um, so they popped up at locations down the Antarctic Peninsula and mail was sent back and forth to Britain via Stanley in the Falkland Islands. At the end of the war, Operation Tabarin was disbanded but the Antarctic programme continued as the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey, or as we have come to call it, FIDS. A programme which was to grow quickly and spread south through the Antarctic Peninsula. Over the following 15 years, several more bases were erected until in 1958-59, there were 13 bases and three refuges all simultaneously occupied, the largest number at any one time. And by the time that FIDS became British Antarctic Survey in 1962, 19 bases and three refuges had been established. Since then, several of the bases were abandoned and scientific work is concentrated at the six which remain in use today. So the 1940s and 50s marked a very important period um, in Antarctic history. The rapid development of scientific programmes and expeditions from a number of nations. 
The USA took a major interest, and as the Cold War began to take hold, the Soviet Union also became active in Antarctica. 1957-58 was the International Geophysical Year. 17 months of international scientific collaboration focused largely, but not exclusively, on Antarctica. 67 countries participated in this ambitious programme, 12 of which were operating a network of scientific stations undertaking a whole range of studies. Stations at Halley Bay, the South Pole, Vostok, Scott Base and several more, still in use today, were established during this time. It really left a very powerful scientific legacy, um, but moreover, it demonstrated an international will and ability to collaborate and set aside territorial conflicts. So in 1959, after a remarkable period of scientific collaboration, 12 nations active in Antarctica signed the Antarctic Treaty. This piece of legislation, which has now held fast for 60 years, has protected Antarctica from damaging commercial exploitation, armed conflict and pollution, and has nurtured an international effort on which all of our futures now, I think, can be said to depend. And so what the Antarctic Treaty does, um, it neutralizes territorial claims, it prohibits nuclear testing and dumping, it demilitarizes the continent, it encourages transparency of operations, and perhaps most remarkably of all, it designates the entirety of the continent as a place exclusively for peace and science. Now, for our work, perhaps the most important feature of this treaty is the um, environmental protocol, which was part of the legislation for the treaty that was passed in 1991. And the environmental protocol is the legislation which governs where the environmental protections for Antarctica lie. And this includes, of course, the consideration of what to do with redundant buildings in Antarctica. It, it, it determined that buildings no longer in use should either be brought back into use, disposed of as waste, or in the cases of the most historically significant examples, designated as historic sites and monuments and protected as such. So there are presently 94 historic sites and monuments in Antarctica, six of which are our responsibility at the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. And it was at our sites really that we understand the basis of a formal scientific programme for British Antarctic research being established. As we've already heard, the research undertaken at these sites represented a large part of Britain's contribution to the International Geophysical Year, in turn establishing the Antarctic Treaty. So the sites that we care for, they include a World War II site turned ionospheric and meteorological research base. That is Port Lockroy. Some of you may have heard of this site. Um, they, but they also include sledding bases for survey as well as wide ranging scientific research that we have at Stonington, um, Ditai and Horseshoe Islands. Um, we have an early FIDS base established for scientific research and the site of the longest continually occupied British Antarctic station to date and also the longest um, continuous weather record um, 
established to date at Wordy House and that weather record is now continued by our friends and colleagues at the Ukrainian station Fanatsky. And of course our most recent air um, site and air transit facility um, a glorified waiting room where people might be left waiting for their plane for weeks as opposed to hours um, at Damoy. And the stories of these sites and of the science and of endeavour and discovery are really embedded in the fabric and the objects of our buildings. And it's this that we aim to preserve and share. So I thought I'd just give you a bit more detail about the site that will form the focus of our upcoming conservation season um, this coming winter, Austral summer. Um, and that is Base W at Detai Island. And this site was established as part of the drive for the International Geophysical Year. It's um, had a wide ranging scientific goals, including survey work, but also geology and meteorology and um, various other things. But it was abandoned just two years after it was established. And this was because the relief vessel that was, was due to resupply the base actually couldn't reach the base because of the sea ice and the conditions on that particular year. And the men who were staffing the base then had to sled over 30 miles over the sea ice to be rescued. Um, so this hurried nature of their evacuation meant that they had to leave almost everything behind. That's their clothes, their food, their books, games, medical equipment, and special things that they may have taken with them. So stepping inside the hut today um, has something of a time warp quality, um, as though the occupiers have just moved out and it's been um, left for centuries, which is exactly what's happened. So for decades, sorry. Um, aside from maintenance, the buildings and the artifacts have been undisturbed since. I think one of the loveliest parts of this story, which um, which which needs to be told is that as well as trying to evacuate the men, they also tried to evacuate the dogs and the dogs were taken out onto the relief ship, um, sledding 30 miles across the sea ice too. One particular dog escaped on, in, on that transfer and they couldn't um, make time to go back and retrieve it. So the dog was last seen running back towards the base unaccompanied and the dog actually turned up two and a half months later at a different base, Horseshoe Island, um, having <laughs> presumably um, kept itself fed and watered on the journey by itself um, and found its way back to a base where it only visited once before. That dog was called Steve, quite remarkable. Um, so, on our next site. So, the sites are special. They have amazing stories of, of humans and dogs. Um, but what exactly do we do to conserve them? And what does conservation in Antarctica even look like? So they're all modest huts. Um, they were never really designed to last beyond their useful life. Um, they are situated in one of the harshest environments on Earth. And they present quite a challenge when it comes to their conservation. So this picture is of Port Lockroy in 1996, um, when a work party had just arrived to um, fix it up. And fortunately, it doesn't look like that anymore. It now looks like this. Um, and of course, whilst our conservation work has allowed for this quite remarkable transformation, 
the work doesn't stop there. Um, it is by necessity ongoing. Um, as you might expect, the harsh Antarctic winters um, are challenging, but the challenges might not necessarily be the ones that you might expect. So they include structural damage because of wind or snow. Um, they include the erosion of surfaces by windborne ice or sand. Um, salt deposition is high and fungal growth can occur, which can break down the cellulose fibres of the timbers. They can experience photo degradation by UV radiation. Meltwater can cause an issue when the snow melts out in the summer, um, causing water ingress. The low temperatures can cause the embrittlement of plastics and the artefacts within the sites. And high humidity, um, which of course is exacerbated by not having any heating in these historic buildings and also having visitors who like to breathe, um, means that humidity is an issue for papers and other um, and, and timber and anything um, organic that's stored there. So all of these things just um, highlight the necessity for regular maintenance and also continued research in order to learn and put into practice the best preservation um, of our buildings. So, like most of us who operate in the Antarctic world, we are constrained um, by multiple factors when it comes to this complicated, time-consuming and resource-intensive um, conservation. We operate with a small team um, with multiple other commitments um, and budget is constrained as we are a charitable organisation. The season itself is very short um, because of the weather windows that we're dealing with and we can't get to every site every year. Um, we also have tourist visits, the majority of which are uninvigilated by us because there are sites where we don't staff. And perhaps most significantly, they're all situated in an incredibly environmentally sensitive place where we need to operate with a good understanding of those sensitivities. Um, and I think we can't also underestimate the potential for our sites to deteriorate much more quickly going forward as we see changes to the climate and, and the Antarctic Peninsula is the fastest, one of the fastest warming regions on the planet. So to try and deal with these challenges, we send a conservation team south every year to work on maintaining and stabilising the structures in our care and the artefacts contained within them. And we are instigating a programme of conservation management where we will bring in expert partners to help us make the best decisions for our sites, which includes architects, conservators, scientists, building and construction experts, historians and archivists. We work to develop conservation management plans for each site, which set out the history, significance and programme of care. So in addition to our conservation season and um, their rotation around the sites on the peninsula, we also send a small team south to care for our most visited site, Base A at Port Lockroy. Um, and this is a site which you may have heard of in the news this season with the um, four, team of four women who are, who are making up the team this year. They usually welcome around 18,000 visitors to Port Lockroy over the course of an austral summer, um, whilst living on the site for almost five months. Conditions are comfortable, but it's an off-grid existence 
without mains power, running water, and very limited communication with the outside world. The main hut at Port Lockroy is presented as a living museum. It tells the story of the base in its heyday in the late 1950s, and there are artifacts and ephemera which tell the story of life, science, men and animals who occupied the base. It is also, the, as Reams already said, the location of the world's most southerly public post office and is home to a colony of charismatic Gen 2 penguins. And for us being able to share the human stories of Antarctica um, to visitors who are able to join us on site um, adds an often unexpected dimension um, to visitors' experience of the continent. They come for the amazing landscapes, incredibly incredible wildlife and um, its remote, remote nature. But then they land at a site abandoned since the 60s, which makes very real the experiences of these pioneer explorers and scientists, their lives, their work and their experiences through the places and things that they left behind. So back to the post office, all the post dropped into our red Royal Mail post box is cancelled by hand. That's what um, we call putting the postmark onto the postage stamp. Um, and it's packaged and sent by ship to the Falkland Islands, where it's then sorted further and sent on a military flight to the UK, where it continues its journey around the world to its various recipients. In a typical season, um, around 80,000 postcards will pass through the post office. Um, each with a special British Antarctic Territory postage stamp. The postmaster will also process a few thousand first day covers, special collector's edition stamps and a number of philatetic requests from stamp collectors around the globe. Our, in addition, our conservation team at their sites will usually also offer postal services at other sites being worked on in any particular year, continuing the tradition started by the FIDS. So as well as the post office, we run a small gift shop, um, the process of which are directed back into our conservation and outreach work. The other very important aspect of life at Port Lockroy is collecting data for a long-term study of the penguin colony on the island, which we undertake on behalf of the British Antarctic Survey. Each season, our team will gather data on the breeding activity of the Gen 2 penguins, the number of pairs, nests, eggs, chicks, etc. And this feeds into a unique study of the colony, which be, has been in progress for 20 years. It offers a unique insight into the challenges in, um, in the success of colonies in a changing environment. We also collect other data, um, other environmental information, um, recording things like microplastics and marine debris which help to inform decision-making and policy at a strategic level. And all this work and this heritage feeds into our programming closer to home. Our work here is a mix of digital and live events, content and activities to explore Antarctica, the people who have and continue to make it, and to explore some of those critical questions about our future. This work includes our successful webinar series, Antarctica in Sight, where we tackle Antarctic issues in detail with experts in various fields. And our podcast series, A Voyage to Antarctica, 
season series three has just been released and I encourage you to have a look and um, here episode one is Dan Snow talking about his discovery of endurance. And finally, one of the key projects this year um, is an immersive Antarctica VR experience being developed by my colleague Leslie um, in collaboration with Anglia Ruskin University. This is scheduled for release later this year, and the project utilizes a 3D model created with photogrammetry, which has an application not only for my conservation planning, but also for creating an immersive world inside our sites. Um, and we're starting with Port Lockroy and ending with Stonington. And this project will embed archival material into a game world to make UCAT sites and their histories accessible to much wider audiences. The goal is to inspire interest and engagement in Antarctica and its heritage while developing a sustainable business plan to enable more digital innovation and audience engagement in the future. And so this is our overarching purpose as a charity to inspire people to engage with Antarctica through the stories that we're able to share to promote Antarctica's importance, impact and the necessity of us all engaging with the greatest questions of our time, I think. How do we play our part in our planet's future? So um, I hope that our, our role is in some way to offer some inspiration and learning from the first two centuries of human endeavour in Antarctica two centuries which perhaps encapsulate the very best and the very worst of what humanity is capable of. So um, thank you, that's a very quick overview of the work that we do at the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. So um, we'd love it if you stayed in touch, we'd love it if you became a supporter, there are various ways you can do that, do have a look at our website. Um, and for now, I hope you've enjoyed this whistle stop tour. And I think we've got plenty of time left over for questions. So I'll let Reem um, invigilate away. Thank you so much, Ruth. That was absolutely fantastic. I, I think I speak for everyone when I say that was incredibly fascinating. It's so wonderful to hear everything that you guys have done, all the fantastic conservation work that you've done as well. And um, before I hand over to questions, if, if any of us would like to support um, the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust or um, help you guys out in any way or adopt a penguin, how, how do you go about that? Um, you can visit our website, um, ukaht.org forward slash support us or just Google it. <laughs> and you can or you can buy things from the shop merchandise um and ad adopting a penguin is very popular <laughs> I, that's definitely something i'd be interested in very cool yeah. awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. okay so we've got a few questions in the chat i've got some of my own but i think it, it's only fair i let some other people uh, ask, ask some of their questions first so and um, from adam coleman he asks what concerns are there for vandalism of any type so what concerns the vandalism so is there any is there any sort of concerns of vandalism for any of the um uh, preservation uh, there are we do have that sort of issue and um it's it's a really tricky one because as as i said for most of our sites um we're not there um for the entire season that they're open and um visitors are free to look around as they choose. Now, most visitors are incredibly responsible and are operating within um, the very responsible framework that is sort of dictated by the International Antarctic Tour Operators um, organization. So I think for, for the most part, it's absolutely fine. But just occasionally we do have, um, we have had items 
being stolen. We have had huts being used um, in inappropriate ways, people um, using them, camping in them, um, um, lighting fires in them. That's That has happened and that's incredibly concerning for us. Um, we do our best, of course, to educate um, as much as we can um, as, our, as our key means of combating that. We don't want to lock the huts. We also shouldn't lock the huts because actually in Antarctica, it is very important that if in very dire situations, people do need a refuge, they are available um, to be used in that way, but it's very much for only in worst case scenarios, you would hope that would happen. Um, so yeah, we, we do our best to, to reach out and tell people about the fact that they are historic sites, that they are conserved as such, um, and that they need to be treated with the respect that that should entail. Fantastic. Yeah, I guess it's all about education, isn't it? And um, ensuring people respect them in the same way. Wonderful. Uh, thank you for that. We've got a question from Richie. So how did you initially become aware of uh, UK Antarctic Heritage Trust? Um, I saw a job advert. I actually hadn't heard of them before that. <laughs> um, but it's 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 a remarkable history once you start reading about it, because I think, you know, it's not everybody has heard of or, or really considered the more recent human history of Antarctica. And whilst it isn't, you know, I, I, I came from a background, as Reem said, of, of working um, in for, working on medieval history, which is, feels like a very long time ago. And the history of Antarctica is much more recent by comparison. But when you come to understand how much has changed um, in a very practical way since the 1940s is quite remarkable when you think of the developments in communication that we've had since then when we when we look at the development in sort of textiles and clothing um, and you think of actually people people were going down without satellite phones um, they, they there was no there were no maps to to have any kind of indication of um where the dangers or crevasses might lie you know it's incredibly um there's been incredible developments in that period of time so whilst it's relatively recent in a grand scale um the changes in that time um the history in that time are incredible but yeah I didn't know about the site until I saw a job advert and thought wow I need this job <laughs> I would really like this job. So cool. And I, I, we can all tell that you're incredibly passionate as well. So I think, I think, perfect job for you, Ruth. It's great. Um, awesome. Uh, so uh, John Arrowsmith asks, I see a number of radio masts um, at the sites featured. Where do these link to? So they, um, they, they had radios, HF radios. Um, they, then they were also using to communicate um, and send, send messages um, back and, uh, the Lockroy especially um, was a radio hub for other um, bases to communicate back to there, which could then um, get communicated further on. So there's some quite amazing um, images of, of the site in its heyday where it's absolutely covered in radio masts. And this was also because they were using radio frequency to explore the ionosphere. Um, which is the upper atmosphere. So um, yeah, the, a, a really vast network. Um, they had radio links to other bases and they there were accounts of on Christmas day playing a game of 
um, chess between the various bases. So you just radio in your um, your next move. <laughs> and, um, they had a bit of a tournament going on, which is a good way to entertain yourself if the only other people you can speak to is um, the other the other men on the bases up the road. That is fantastic. That's fascinating. I love that um, chess is a timeless game. That certainly uh, <laughs> so. Seems to be <laughs> which is great. And uh, Joey Farrell asks, um, or Joey Farrell asks, what precise work is a three man um, at the UK AHT team currently doing at Des Moines? Great question. So yeah, our team of three is currently at at Des Moines. What they're doing is um, is actually restoring the hut to its original colour that's their predominant task and they have just finished so the hut when it was constructed this is our air transit facility and it dates to 1975 so it's our most recent hut and um, effectively when the sea ice prevented ships going all the way to the more southerly sites like Rothera they would take the ship as far as Damoy which is basically right next door to Port Lockroy um, and it's more northerly on the peninsula. They drop off their um, their team there, and the ship would carry on and go about its business, go go back north again. And then they would wait. The men would wait for a plane which would transfer them back down further down south to Rothera or other field camps. And um, yeah, as I as I sort of said at the beginning, they could be there few days or they could be there a few weeks the Antarctic conditions are very unpredictable you don't know when the ski when the plane's going to arrive and when it does arrive it has to land and take off from a glacier so the amount of snow is also a consideration um, but in that early years the hut was painted orange and we believe it was painted orange because it was an air station and it was so that the pilots could more readily see it from the air um, over the years, it got painted different colours and it became green, uh, probably because there were other pots of green paint from other um, bass buildings lying around. Um, and then it became bright blue. And our task this year was to restore it back to its original orange and the hope that people will better understand its function and purpose and how it connects to the landscape around it. So that's the main task. They've also been busying themselves with artifact cataloguing, um, fixing various things. Um, and they've also been battling some quite harsh conditions. It's been they've had they've only they've only been there for a month, but they've had quite a few storms that have flattened one of their tents on more than one occasion. <laughs> um, it's been a bit rough. Um, but they are they are heading back to Port Lockroy any day now, Wonderful. and they have successfully painted the hut. Yay! Um, do you know what? Sorry, what colour did they paint the hut? Back to its original orange. Fantastic! That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Robert asks, do you work alongside the BAS? I'm assuming uh, that's British Antarctic Survey. And yeah. uh, did the recent breakaway of the huge ice shelf affect you? Um, we work very closely with British Antarctic Survey. The um, the huts in our care actually um belong to British Antarctic Survey they're all sort of former British Antarctic Survey bases and precursed that being being the Falkland Islands Dependency Survey bases um so we we work very very closely with them our offices are located in their building we collaborate on on various tasks and we care for the huts on their behalf um the the recent huge ice shelf breakaway hasn't affected us very much yet any more than it perhaps has or will um, to to the, the rest of the globe really it's quite far away 
and where our sites are. Thank you. And um, Len Goss asks, who do you focus on uh, for getting your messages out and where do you get the best engagement from? Oh, that's a great question. Um, who do we focus on? It's very much a question, I think, up for review. I mean, I, I, we're working to broaden our audiences as much as we can. Um, and I think we traditionally had a very sort of loyal following of people who who are interested in, in, in Antarctic issues, but we're trying to touch more people going forward. So um, that's where the conception for the podcast came from um, and the topics they're dealt with in that podcast are really, really wide ranging. So this season, um, as I said, Dan Snow is talking about endurance and that's very um, historically minded, but we've also got Maya Rose Craig, the environmental activist will be talking. We've got discussions about um, exploration and all female expeditions to the South Pole. You know, hopefully there's something in there for everything. So we're trying to um, trying to trying to increase um, our audience and, and diversify the audiences through through this different type of topic. Awesome, thank you. I know that Oliver's got his hand up. I'm going to be selfish and ask my question first. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was just wondering with the um, obviously the Cold War influence and the sort of um, the space race and the technological advancements, sort of the race to get to the top in terms of um, scientific advancements. Did Port Lockroy or any of the other um, uh, preservation sites have any kind of impact in the Cold War? Or was there any sort of particular, particularly influential part of it that sort of um, they were either side was ahead or um, yeah, any, anything to do with the Cold War? <laughs> they, I mean, they all had, they all had a, a huge sort of collaborative impact on the International Geophysical Year and what that meant for this collaborative effort of the Antarctic Treaty. Um, no, the different bases had different specialisms, if you like. So put the first Whistler recording, which is the um, was was taken at Lockroy, which is this sound from the upper atmosphere. It's created by lightning, I think. Um, and um, we also had other sites that were um, researching different different elements and collaborating on research. So there there was there was they all had a had a sort of unique but also it was it was the effort of the whole of the whole research organization that made such a big difference um to this effort and to this collaboration um and of course the we we most of us do realize even if we don't know where it came from we we know that um the hole in the ozone was discovered um in antarctica that was actually at halley one of the bases that's still in use um today but it's it was it was all the work of um, British Antarctic Survey that was that was put together to the to make these extraordinary discoveries. Awesome, thank you. That's really interesting, um, Oliver. I'll finally let you ask your question. Um, I was just wondering about the the team that that um, run Port Lockroy each year. I know it's a very competitive selection process. What what exactly are you looking for in the applicants for that, and how do you? craft that team and yeah what what kind of people are you looking for it's a really i mean it's a, it's a fascinating process to be a part of i have to say it's incredibly as you say it is incredibly competitive but this year we got um oh, i think in total there's something like six thousand applicants for for places um and 
we do and, and it's also wonderful because whilst many roles in Antarctica generally are very very specialized these roles actually aren't you know we really they are um they're, they're for anybody to be able to go you know that we send a postmaster but the postmaster usually doesn't have any postal training um we send a wildlife monitor um and they may have some you know some expertise or some training but it doesn't have to be extensive we send a shop manager um so that's people that have worked in some kind of retail job before as many people have and we send a base leader who will have some kind of demonstrable leadership experience but again it can be very broad so it's it's really and it sounds very vague but it's very much about finding people that want to go I think for the for the right reasons um we don't want anybody that wants to go just because they want to tick a continent off the list um we want people who have a genuine interest in the work that we do um and in the a general a general respect i think for the continent for the wildlife of the continent for the heritage of our sites um for the importance of those environmental measures that can seem quite um trialsome um but actually um are um such an important part of what we do um so yeah having people with the right attitude towards the towards the trip is the most important thing and then of course we pick people that we think are going to get on well with each other because they live in very very close quarters for quite for five months there's no privacy they all share the same room um they you know they're, they're probably first for many of them irregular showers irregular fresh food um um very basic toileting facilities uh that it's it's um, a test of friendship. They have to start by liking each other. And we hope that they'll come back liking each other. I was going to say, that does sound like a test of humanity. <laughs> and when, an honest sort of logistical question, when when is the application process each year and, and how long does that process last? And then when when do they head off? Um, the So it'll, it'll be, the, the new call for applicants will be very soon. So I think we'll put the release for new applicants out at the end of this month or the beginning of next month. Um, and um, selection will take place, ooh, uh, I think about a month later. So we might have people in, in selected by April. Um, and then they have a bit of a break and we'll bring them to Cambridge for their training. Um, we usually have one, we'll have one event over the summer for them to get to know each other. And then they'll begin their training in something like September, and then they'll head south in um, early November. Thank you. So we're waiting for our, oh, do I have a potential applicant in you there? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> we, um, we're expecting our team back um, at the middle of March this year. So. That's fascinating. And do you, so do you accept applicants from like all walks of life or is it just, um, particularly people, those sorts of people that are interested in in, in um, the conservation. We 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 will welcome applicants from any any walk of life with any interest. Um, we just just want you to be be interested in the work. You don't necessarily have to have experience in it. Fantastic, that's awesome. And um, I see that Benedict Hazel has a hand up. If you want to unmute yourself, you can ask a question. 
Sure, thank you. Um, I'll be a bit cheeky. I'm not really going to be answering a question, more of a statement, actually. But Ruth, thank you so much for a really interesting presentation. Now, I'm actually already a member of the UK AHT, and it's great to see um, the stuff that you guys are actually are doing, and also like the the the, um, the quarterly uh, Antarctic news newsletter we all get. It's always great to read that. And I've actually myself had the pleasure of visiting Port Lockroy on my second Antarctic uh, voyage, and I can just say to everyone here what an amazing place it is. You know, the, the museum really is beautifully done. You know, bearing in mind it's in, this, in the middle of absolutely nowhere in the, in the most remote part of the world. You know, it's been done in a really beautiful way. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I would strongly encourage everybody to, you know, support the UK EHT, get, keep this great work going. And yes, go and adopt that penguin. And just one final point, I would say you mentioned there about the rather basic facilities at Port Lockroy. We, um, we, we, had, the, we had the introduction when we arrived at Port Lockroy from the team. And they were very, very excited to get on board the Ocean Endeavour because it meant they could go and use the toilets and have a shower for the first time in two months. So it was <laughs> it was one of them. What's lovely for us then is they actually joined us then for dinner on board the ship as well. So it was it was a lovely place to visit. And so if you if you if you do go on an Antarctic voyage and you are able to get to Port Lockery, make the most opportunity you can to get there. So once again, thank you so much for this presentation this evening. Thank you. Thanks so much for sharing that, Benedict. I'm so glad. So glad that you're you're here, and so glad you got to visit Lockroy, and indeed that you uh, <laughs> that your ship was able to help them out with a shower. <laughs> indeed, I'm sure I, that was I, when, appreciated. <laughs> when they announced we're going to Port Lockroy, I squealed with glee quite loudly during the end of day uh, meeting. So, <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. That's wonderful. I mean, if that that's an advertisement for to, to go and join the voyage that sounds fantastic I think that I'm sure that many of our members themselves will be quite interested in that as well so thank you for that Benedict that's really helpful um we have any more questions from the chat box but I had um, a question about base W so from um the Tali Island um you mentioned like the sort of the work that they did in sort of meteorology and um you know geography and that kind of thing but do you know what sort of work they did specifically and the reason why i'm interested is um obviously you said that the, the, the sort of site had been preserved but did they have like any equipment or tools that was also preserved as well as like the food and the uh, the other stuff that they had so there was a few a few things that they did there so survey was a big part of what they were doing so they were mapping the side of the peninsula, which is why it was a sledding base um, and why we have the preservation of things like kennels. So we have the um, the sled surviving um, as well as, you know, the, the mapping element. There was also a collection of samples of geological samples um, as part of that tasking. So um, they would collect a box where they could um, bring them back for study. Um, it was also a base um, for meteorological research, and that meant um, daily weather recordings. Um, it also meant um, the releasing of weather balloons, um, which um, we do have um, some left from. That's really interesting. Thank you. And um, Oliver asked, how do your teams get to the other bases aside from Lockroy? And does the UKHT operate um, a boat specifically for this kind of task? Great question. Um, no, we usually, for our conservation seasons, we usually um, go with the Royal Navy. So um, HMS Protector, who who operate um, in the summer season, um, in the austral summer season out of Stanley in the Falkland Islands, oh, sorry, out of out of the Falkland Islands, out of Mehaibra in the Falkland Islands, they will take us to our other sites. Um, and the advantage of that, of course, is not only um, a nice um, 
transit to the center, but it also means we have some extra hands to help unload the kit when we get there. Um, obviously there can be quite a lot of supplies that we take. We, um, we operate a whole field camp when the conservation teams go south. So they, they camp in tents um, and they might be there for a month to a couple of months. And um, yeah, so there's quite a lot of clobber associated with that. Lots of timber, um, other supplies, lots of tools, scaffolding, that kind of thing. So um, it's great to have the Navy because they'll, they'll help us lug all the kit and get us set up as well as dropping us off. That's wonderful. And um, I think that we've got a few more minutes left. I think maybe this is a good question at the end, but um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the VR experience, the, the virtual reality. That sounds incredible. So if as we could tell you a bit about what it actually like shows us and sort of what happens when you're navigating it, but also is it, will it be available to the wider public? Can we purchase it? Can we have a look at it ourselves? Um, yeah, it's super exciting. Um, I, I can't wait. I can't wait for it to be finished so that we can all have a go. Um, uh, the hope is that we've got we've got this data already, and the hope is that it can it can have a number of different iterations. So I think the version that's currently in development is um, aimed at um, more you know um, secondary school type age children as opposed to um adults it, it is a it is a game an educational game if you like where there'll be archival material that they can sort of look at and learn about the different research that took place the different um, um types of work that took place at the base that so they'll be able to walk around and pick things up and and learn and um, learn about the different activities um but the idea is that, that once this data you know once this VR world exists, it can be put to different uses. So um, it's very useful also because we've got point cloud documentation that enables us to measure buildings with millimeter accuracy, which is obviously incredibly useful for the work that I do when we when we need to decide how much of um, whatever um, piece of um, a piece of materials we need. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think uh, the short answer is that I don't exactly know where it's going to be available yet. It will be available for schools. Um, it will probably be toured um, around schools in the first instance, but I hope it will be more widely available after that. That is fantastic. I mean, the future of, it is literally the future of conservation with these technological advances. Yeah. And of course, there are a lot of people that will never get to go to Antarctica, the majority. Um, and this is, we hope, a way for them to, to be able to experience it. Absolutely. And I guess these are sort of advancements mean that it's so much more accessible to everyone. But also, yeah. even, you know, those that maybe can't afford to go, but also, the, you know, people that physically cannot go. So um, it really is bringing that conservation, bringing the, the, the wonderful um, sort of work that you guys do, like literally to their doorstep, which I think is amazing. Um, but also just from like a charitable perspective. So one of our um, aims as a charity is um, to educate and education. And I think that the fact that you're bringing it to primary schools is just so wonderful um i anybody that like is thinking about supporting um ukht if you can anyway definitely do it sounds fantastic and i think the work like this and using these technological advancements in order to educate um about this conservation work i think is fantastic so that's wonderful um i don't know if we have any other questions there's no more in the chat box um if anybody would like to put their hand up then we can if not then i think we can end there i think 
we've got no more questions so i would just like to end uh, there thank you so much ruth that was an incredibly fascinating uh, webinar and uh, thank you for the opportunity to ask you questions as well that was really really great well thank you very much for having me it's been a real pleasure to speak with you tonight thank you so much thank you and if, and if anybody would like to um support the charity definitely uh, check out their website as well um go and go and go and sponsor a penguin sounds great <laughs> um uh, philip our chief executive i think said he uh, wanted to say something so i'll let him uh, finish off yeah thanks Irene. yeah no, i just wanted to <clears throat> say my own thanks to you ruth um uh, and um thank you to everyone who's um obviously joined our first webinar of the year um and uh, i didn't want to uh, derelict my duty just by uh, uh highlighting um, what's coming up as well uh, in the football calendar uh, so next week we have um, a reception in London launching um, ten year, our 10-year anniversary book. So if uh, anyone is in London on Tuesday the 21st, you will have to give up Pancake Day, but, you know, you are. Uh, we will have um, some themed uh, treats uh, available on the night. So, uh, yes, please do come along. And next month we've got our usual dinner in, Man in Newcastle and uh, we're hosting Michael Binion, who was the... Times correspondent, uh, the Russian Times correspondent during the 1980s. Um, Michael is, a, for those of you who know Michael Binion, he's very much uh, fascinated uh, by St Helena and as uh, will be speaking about his own time visiting St Helena. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, just uh, thank you again, Ruth. And um, I've, as you know, I think, you know, Ruth, because I, I joined the, uh, uh, your, the your organisation in two months ago. And um, as soon as I, um, I didn't know, I'll be honest, yeah, I didn't know you existed, uh, I didn't know you, I tacit heritage existed until uh, uh, around November last year. But as soon as I did, I thought it would be uh, great for us to, 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 to start our uh, a year off with, with, this, uh, with this webinar. So thank you so much, Ruth, and please do, do come along to um, any of our events. Uh, you'd be very welcome. And I'll, of course, hopefully get along to one of your events in the, in the near future. That's it, Reem. But I'll just... <laughs> Thanks so much, Philip. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks thank so you so much, Ruth. And uh, thank you, everyone, for attending the event. Uh, definitely come to future events if you are available. They're all on the football website if you'd like to have a look. Thank you, everyone. Have a lovely evening. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Nice, sir. Thank you.